Good morning, everyone. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. My brother, uh, Matt, and sister-in-law Valerie's wedding was in a little country church in a lovely little valley in northeast Georgia, not far from where we grew up. Uh, Jenny was the maid of honor. I was the best man. We were still just dating at that point. And the reception after the wedding uh, was nearby at a state park, uh, Black Rock Mountain State Park, where there is a beautiful overlook. And you can see for miles and miles uh, in every direction. And there's a pavilion up there just at the overlook. So that's where they had their reception, a perfect spot. So after the wedding, we all drove up the mountain to the reception at this pavilion on top of the mountain. It's kind of a long, curvy road to get up there. And we didn't realize until we were all there and ready to start eating that the caterer had forgotten silverware. All silverware. Just hadn't brought any. So we had all this food set out and ready to go and nothing to eat it with. And we couldn't just run out easily and pick up some more at the store. We were on the top of a mountain. And it was a good half hour or more to the nearest store where you can buy silverware. Uh, all the way down the windy mountain road and all the way back up. So someone did make the trek and we eventually did have silverware to eat with, but not till after we'd kind of been standing around uh, for an hour or so. And it was perfectly okay, and I don't think anybody minded too much. I wasn't very stressed about it, maybe others were. <laughs> um, they say that something goes wrong at every wedding, right? Um, there are just too many details, too many moving parts. Someone's gonna forget something. There'll be a disagreement about something. The flower girl's not going to want to walk down the aisle. Something. I imagine you have your own stories of things that have gone wrong at weddings you've been to. And we can mostly laugh these things off because we know that they're not essential to what's happening. What's happening is two lives are being joined together in a covenantal relationship, which is itself, Ephesians 5 teaches us, a picture of Christ's marriage to his bride, the church. And there's something so grand about that, so great and glorious, that no merely human wedding could ever hope to fully picture. But that is the ideal. That's the thing that our weddings are pictures of. That's true not just of our weddings, but of our marriages themselves, right? Even the very best marriages are not beautiful because they perfectly realize this wonderful ideal. No human marriage ever could. The best marriages are beautiful because they keep on pursuing that ideal through failings and hurts and sins and then forgiveness and reconciliation. Through faithfulness over time, which by God's grace can produce something more beautiful and more enduring than we ourselves are able to imagine. Well, our psalm today, Psalm 45, is a wedding psalm. 
And while it was presumably written on the occasion of a human wedding, the marriage of one of the kings of Israel or of Judah, if we read it carefully, we can see that it constantly wants to escape the boundaries of this merely human setting, this royal wedding, and be about something even greater and more beautiful. The great commentator on the Psalms, Derek Kidner, says that this psalm constantly wants to burst its banks and to demand a more than human fulfillment. I'm going to suggest to you that this is a psalm about the great wedding that all human weddings are pointing to, the marriage of Christ to his people. And its language reflects that glory, that majesty, that great beauty. It's a wonder of a psalm. And I'm excited to spend a few minutes this morning meditating on it with you. The psalm is divided just about exactly in half. The first half focuses on the bridegroom and the second half on the bride. Our lectionary only gives us the second half, the part about the bride. And that's okay. And I do want to focus uh, mostly on that half of the psalm. But first, I want to point out just a couple things from the first half of the psalm, uh, the part that's not in your bulletin, the part that's about the king, the bridegroom. So if you do have your Bible, I invite you to follow along in Psalm 45, or you can just listen. Specifically, I want us to notice a couple places where the psalm, as Kidner says, bursts its banks and starts to show that it's about more than just this royal wedding in ancient Israel. Verse 2 calls this bridegroom the fairest of men, or the fairest of all the sons of men. That in itself is a little telling. Either this is hyperbole, or this guy is pretty special. The psalmist is calling him the fairest or most beautiful man who has ever lived, it's idealized language. This is not just a normal human wedding where people do things like forgetting the silverware at the reception. This is the ideal wedding, and this bridegroom is the ideal man. But it's in verse 6 that the psalmist really gives it away. Addressing the bridegroom, the psalmist says this, Your throne, O God, endures forever and ever. It calls this king God, and it says that his throne will endure forever. Some English translations try to soften the impact of this verse by translating it in other ways. Instead of your throne, O God, they say things like your divine throne or God's throne is yours. But that's not what it says. It says your throne, O God. This verse is calling this king God. A verse later, something even more interesting happens. In verse 7, the psalm says, again addressing this king, who it has just called God, says this, You love righteousness and hate iniquity. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. The psalm says that this king who is God, has been anointed by God. 
This makes no sense in the merely historical context of an ancient Israelite royal wedding. But it makes perfect sense if we read this psalm according to our Christian confession. God the Father is anointing his son, the Messiah. And the New Testament agrees. Hebrews chapter 1 quotes these two verses, Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, about Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1 says this, Of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. This Old Testament wedding song finds its fulfillment in the praise of the church today. And we sing it today in the bright light of the full revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. After all, it was the same spirit who was at work in the church today who first spoke these psalms through his prophets. And the church fathers teach us to read the Psalter and by extension, all of Holy Scripture through the lens of our Christian confession. So here in this wedding psalm, we find Jesus, the divine king, anointed by his own father. So now we turn to the second half of the psalm, the half that is actually printed in your bulletins, which we read a few minutes ago, the half that focuses on the bride in this great wedding. If the bridegroom in this psalm is Christ, then who is Christ's bride? Well, we know the answer. It's the people of God. Ephesians 5 teaches us that marriage itself is a picture of a love of Christ for his people, specifically in Ephesians 5, the church. Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. And then, this mystery is a profound one, Paul says, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And certainly that is how the church has interpreted Psalm 45 down through the ages. So if you can imagine with me this psalm to be a picture of Christ and his church, a few things really stand out about the bride. First, quite astonishingly, she is not from Israel. She is a Gentile woman, a foreigner. Verse 11 says, Hear, O daughter, consider and listen closely. Forget your people and your father's house. The implication is that she is from another people who she's now being told to leave behind. She's also called a princess, the daughter of a king, presumably the king of another country. And then verse 13 says, the people of Tyre are here with a gift. And this is usually taken to imply that she is probably from Tyre, a city to the north of Israel. And we know that the Israelites had many doings with Tyre. One of the frequent guesses about which king this psalm might have been about is Solomon. He fits the bill in a few ways. He was the most glorious of all Israel's kings. His reign was the height of Israel's wealth and splendor before the kingdom was divided. What's more, though, we know that Solomon did marry many foreign women. So it would make sense if this psalm was composed 
for one of Solomon's marriages. I mean, we really don't know. We are guessing. But Solomon seems to make as much sense as anybody else. But here's the difference. Solomon's marriages to foreign women and the marriages of other Israelite kings to foreign women were not portrayed as a good thing in the Old Testament story. Solomon's foreign wives turn him to idolatry, and Solomon is judged for it. In the very next generation, the kingdom is divided. So what's so surprising about this bride in our psalm being from another nation is that God has often told his people not to intermarry with other nations. This was not a racist thing. In fact, the Old Testament makes a point of including the stories of several foreign women who were incorporated into the people of God, women like Rahab and Ruth, and in a different way, Rebecca, who we read about in our Old Testament lesson this morning. No, God's rule about not marrying foreigners was because God knew that if his people did, they would inevitably, inevitably begin to worship the gods of those nations, which is exactly what happened over and over again. So it's very strange that in this psalm, the marriage of this foreign princess to the king of Israel is celebrated, and their marriage is blessed by God. What's going on here? Once again, I think our psalm is bursting its banks and starting to be about things beyond its initial context. Throughout, this Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, God frequently shows that he's very interested in including Gentiles in the blessings of his people. His initial promise to Abraham, the father of the Israelite nation, was that through Abraham, he would bless all the peoples of the earth. We've already mentioned the stories of Rahab and of Ruth. The prophet Isaiah sees a vision of all the kings of the earth streaming to the city of Zion, bringing their rich gifts with them. A vision that was partly fulfilled when the Magi visited uh, Jesus after his birth. But it wasn't until later that it became more clear exactly what God had been planning. In Romans 11, Paul says that through Jesus, God has opened up the blessings, his blessings, not only to the people of Israel, but to the Gentiles too. The Gentiles would be grafted in to the family of God. And the church would not be a merely Jewish community. It would be made up of all the peoples on the earth. So here in this ancient psalm, the people of God are pictured as a Gentile woman being brought in marriage to the king of Israel. But given that, <clears throat> excuse me, given that, notice what she is told to do. We've already read it. Hear, O daughter, consider and listen closely. Forget your people and your father's house. This reminds us of what we read in Genesis 1, that when a man and woman are married, a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. And Paul quotes this verse in Ephesians 5, too. For marriage to work, both parties have to leave their own families and start a new one. Not that you leave everything about your parents' family behind. You are still shaped by them. And you always will be. But there's still a kind of forsaking that has to happen. A new loyalty that has to begin. We read about it this morning, again, in the story of Rebecca 
in order to be grafted into the brand new family of Israel, Rebecca had to quite literally forsake her father's house and travel far away to a place she had never been to marry a man she had never met. And this was for her also a forsaking of her old gods, her old ways of worship. In marrying Isaac, she would be learning to worship a new God, the God of Abraham and of Isaac, and soon of her own son, Jacob, too. All this is, I think, very instructive for us. When we are grafted into God's family, we too have to forget our own people and our father's house. To be incorporated into the church and joined in marriage to Christ, we too are called out of the world. Of course, as Ismael has been teaching us in our uh, series on loving cross-culturally, there are many good things about all our cultures. Uh, The many cultures of the world are part of God's good design and his good plan for the human race. Like the three kings of old, we bring those good gifts to Christ. But there is also a forsaking that needs to happen. We are now joined to Christ. He is our new and first loyalty, and that loyalty supersedes all others. To be united to Christ in this way means leaving behind the idols we used to worship. Too often we try to smuggle them into our new lives. Like Rachel did, if you remember that story from Genesis. But no, those old loyalties must not compete with the new. There's one final aspect of this psalm I want to mention. This great wedding, this great archetype of marriages will be fruitful. Verse 17, in place of fathers, O king, you shall have sons. You shall make them princes over all the earth. It is a characteristic of marriages to bear fruit, to be fruitful and multiply. That's what marriage is naturally ordered toward. Of course, I know not all marriages result in children. And I know it can be very painful when they don't. The Bible has many stories of couples who could not bear children, and the Bible understands the grief of that. But God finds a way to make all things fruitful. He loves to bring fruit out of situations that seem stuck or unfruitful. So whether or not marriage, a marriage bears literal children God has many ways to bring fruit out of our marriages. And I think it's important for me to say that. And so this marriage of Christ and his church is not only concerned with the present. It's looking forward. It will be fruitful. This is part of God's fulfillment of his promise to Abraham. Abraham and Sarah too, remember, could not bear children. God again bringing fruitfulness where there was none. God promised that Their descendants would be more numerous than the sand on the seashore, than the stars in the sky. And the fruitfulness of this marriage in Psalm 45 is the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham long ago. The children of this marriage will rule the world. They will be princes over all the earth. What other marriage can say that? 
only one, the marriage of Christ and his people. These sons, in verse 17, are the sons of Hebrews chapter 2, where it says that through his death, Jesus will bring many sons to glory. And it is through these sons and daughters too, of course, that as our psalm says in its final verse, God will make this king's name to be remembered from one generation to another so that the nations will praise you forever and ever. We started out by talking about how our own weddings and our marriages are small and imperfect pictures of this great wedding. But now as we end, I want to reverse that. I want to come back down from the great marriage of Christ and his people to our own lives. What does all this mean for us? Not all of us are called to marriage. In fact, as much as Jesus is the great bridegroom in this psalm, and he is pictured that way in other places in scripture too, he himself never married while he was on earth. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians that being unmarried is in some ways better than being married. It's important to say this clearly. Both unmarried life and married life are unique and indispensable pictures of Christ. But whether you are married or not, if you've been baptized into the church, this marriage in Psalm 45 is of great importance to you. By it, Christ joins himself to his people, to us. By it, he loves us and gives himself up for us to make us holy, cleansing us by the washing with water through the word. By it, he feeds and cares for us because as his bride, we are all members of his body. There's a song I like by a singer named Lee Bozeman. He's singing about his own wife, and he says this. Fifteen years you've worn the ring. Who could have guessed at the beginning? I like that line because it describes the way a marriage grows and changes over time. If we're faithful to our marriages, they can become something that we can't even see right now something we may even struggle to believe in sometimes, something more beautiful, more solid than we can imagine. Who could have guessed at the beginning? If that's true of our earthly marriages, how much more of this heavenly marriage in which all of us, married or not, are caught up? It too invites us to see how faithful God can be. By his word and sacrament, and in the trials and tribulations we suffer, he is preparing us, his people, for the great wedding feast of the Lamb, where he will present us to himself radiant, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, holy and blameless. And the one who calls us is faithful, and he will do it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.